0: And if you'd open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, we are going to do a three-chapter survey in Matthew. You think I can do it? I can do it. Trust me, I can do it. We, Yeah, we are going to try to end, uh, conclude and finish the book of Matthew by Advent. So we've got about a month to go through all these chapters. So I'm going to do three today, and uh, it's going to be like an over, overview, a survey, I guess you would say, of these three chapters, obviously with the overarching theme of the truth that we've been looking at as we've been going through Matthew, that we are not of this world. We are part of another world, part of another kingdom, Um, and that's what God's uh, heart for us is to understand increasingly is who we are and who he is. So we're going to look at chapters 14, 15, and 16, I'm just going to pick out some key texts, and then we're going to look at this, and we're going to draw from it the truth that I believe God wants us to have today. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. We do pray this morning that you would speak to us by your spirit. We pray that you would teach us, Lord, become as disciples, as learners today to be taught of you. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to take maybe some texts that are very familiar and to speak to us afresh, to stir us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to strengthen us in your word. And Lord, that we, that we might be sent to go in your name. We do pray for Matt and Shannon, and we ask for their blessing on them uh, today as you would use them to minister to that church in Southern California. Thank you for the privilege of leading and of going and being called by your name. And we give this time to you in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. If you turn with me to Matthew 14, let's begin in verses 13 through 21. I'm going to skip the first 12 verses. I'll tell you what happened is John the Baptist is brutally murdered. He's beheaded. And it was in a very treacherous way that it took place. Um, Herod, in his insecurity, in his fear, um, basically catered to uh, the daughter of his, of his brother. Uh, Herodias was his brother. and his, Herodias was his brother, Philip's wife. And uh, he catered to her and had him killed, beheaded in a very brutal way. And so we find now the Lord in verse 13. And I thought about this as I just read this text, that this must have been brutally difficult for Jesus, hard for Jesus. Losing a friend, losing his cousin, and actually the way that it happened. And sometimes we can shoot right by these things and forget that he was just like us. That he probably felt the kind of grief that we might have felt having lost someone like that. Let's read beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this regarding John's murder and death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, "There is a desolate. This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages so that they might buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And They said, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven, and he said, A blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Notice the, the way that this takes place. Jesus gives them to the disciples, the disciples give them to the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces that were left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So probably uh, 10,000 people at least Jesus feeds in this account in Matthew chapter 14. So in his grief, he wants to withdraw and be by himself, but he is unable to because of the crowds. They would not let him be alone. They were following him. And we're going to see the heart of God very powerfully in this text. First of all, that Jesus identifies with our grief and our sorrow. And that he is moved by compassion. He's moved by compassion for us in the state of our existence. Jesus understands what you feel. And the reason that he understands this is because he felt it himself. He knows what we are going through because he himself went through it. And that's, again, something that we easily forget. Especially when our prayers aren't answered, right? especially when we feel like we might be alone, especially when we feel like nobody knows and nobody understands, we have to always remember the Lord does know, the Lord understands, and he feels what we feel. And he has felt what we feel. And I want to tell you that in this text, there are two edges to the way that Jesus responds to the need of the people. First of all, it is a compassionate response to man's pain, as I just said. But also, it is a foreshadowing of the coming kingdom. That, that Jesus Christ, we're going to see his healing throughout this text, again and again and again in Matthew 14, where Jesus is healing. And he is healing, first of all, simply out of compassion. That is a motive that, that we must not lose. That we must not ever have begin to. To, to to faint in our hearts, to diminish in our hearts, is the sense of compassion. And it is a difficult feeling to maintain because we can become cynical, because we can become hardened to the state of men that we see around us so often, the needs of man. I think I've told this story before, and I know those of you that are in, in the medical fields can relate, that when I was a fireman, I, I, the first night I went out, for my first call, it was a horrible car accident. And I came back and went back to bed after the car accident. And I was laying in bed, and we were in this large dorm, and I'm laying next to this captain that had been a captain for many years. And I'm laying there wide awake, and I just kind of turned over, and I said, how do you ever get used to this? And he goes, well, you will. You'll get used to it. And I thought right then, I thought, I don't want to get used to it. You know, you, you have to, in a certain sense, you've got to deal with it and you've got to be able to continue to, to function. But you don't ever want to lose the sense of compassion for people, even as you see them again and again and again. And Jesus never did lose that. But the healing that we're going to see and the feeding of the 5,000, even in this text, is a picture of the foreshadowing of the coming kingdom in its fullness. When Jesus will, will there will be no longer any heal, no sickness, no need for healing. There will no longer be any hunger. There will, listen, no longer be any need for compassion. It's a wonderful thing, because the kingdom will have come. And it's this feeding of the multitudes is filled with implications for us today. Again, we see the compassion of God and that the need not to become callous. And we need to also understand that care for the poor is at the heart of the gospel. Care for the poor. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2 for a moment. Care for the poor is at the very center of the gospel. Galatians 2, verse 8, Paul writes, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, Paul is speaking. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Ministry to the poor, the heart for the poor, has always been at the very center of the gospel. And you know that in the Old Testament, the Lord commanded them not to glean from the corners of the fields, not to harvest from the corner of the fields, so that the poor could come and actually glean from the corners of the fields. The alien, the foreigners, could come and eat from the corners of their fields that they left unharvested for the sake of the poor. The poor have always been at the, at the focal point of God's heart. And again, I'm speaking to us today not to become callous, not to become cynical because of what we see in the world around us. And I think, God, I think I, sh- I told you guys this. Maybe, maybe I didn't. I know I told someone this. If I did tell you already, forgive me. Just a few weeks ago, the Lord just said to me, every time you come up to a, a stop sign and there's somebody there wanting money, I want you to give them money. And, I, I, you know, we all know, well, what are they going to do with it? And I feel like the Lord said to me, Does it doesn't matter. That's between me and them. What's between you and me is I want you to be generous, and I want you to give to people. And so I've made it a point now to try to do that. And if they use it on drugs, that's up to them before God. I'm, that's not my, it's between them and God. My heart is to say, Lord, I want to give. I want to be a giving person. I want to be a generous person. I want to be a compassionate person. I do not want to see the plight of people and become hardened to it. And in the world we're living, it is easy to have that happen, isn't it? Can I say it again? The poor have always been at the very center of the heart of God, and it is always at the center of the gospel. I'm finding so much joy preaching to the women at Folsom Prison, thanks to Robin, who encouraged me to do start to do that. I'm finding so much joy preaching to them because they are so hungry for God. And it's such a blessing to be able to give to people who are hungry and who are thankful. And so we need to be more and more about that. Amen, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the bread of life, is this Teaching in this. You know, the commentaries make a big deal about the, the, the 12 baskets that are left over in the feeding of the 5,000, and in the next chapter, there's going to be the feeding of the 4,000, and there's a big deal about the seven baskets that are left over. What do they mean? What do the 12 represent? What do the seven represent? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. All I know is, is that Jesus fed people that were hungry. Jesus was concerned for the, for the, the plight of these people, and he He took care of them. And I I pointed out to you also how Jesus broke the bread. He gave it to the disciples, and then the disciples gave it to the crowd. So the picture is very clear what Jesus' words were. We remember freely you have received, now freely give. You see, what should be happening is that what God gives us should be passing through our hands. What God has given you and I should be passing through our hands to others as often as it can, and as freely as we are able to do it, whether it is time, energy, talent, money, whatever it may be, whatever God has given us should simply be in our hands, held loosely to pass through to whomever else God wants to have it. Matt taught a few months ago on being generous people, and I believe this church is a generous church. But I think we need to become even more generous. I think we need to be looking for opportunities to give. And we need to find the joy that comes from letting what God has put in our hands pass through to others. And so we see this amazing story of Jesus' feeding of these people and all of the the truth of the compassion and of the coming of the kingdom and Jesus himself being the bread of life. It's interesting because, because when he was tempted to turn rocks into bread, what did he say to the devil? He said, no, he said, man will not eat, live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that Jesus said, your true sustenance is not even in the bread, it's in God himself and in the word of God. And yet here he is very practically feeding. He himself, I always thought this was ironic, feeding the 5,000, he himself who was the bread of life. If only they would have known, huh? Who was feeding them? We go on in verses 22 through 33, and Jesus walks on the water. It says in verse 22: immediately after he had fed these five thousand, were ten thousand, probably at least men, women, and children. He told the disciples to get into the boat, verse 22, and go onto the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. So he must have stayed after with the people, which is interesting. While the disciples got in a boat to go to the other side of the lake, he stayed on that side with the people, and after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountain again by himself to pray. He wanted to get away again, he wanted to be alone, and he needed to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat was a long way from land, being beaten by waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth night of a uh, watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, thinking it was a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart. It's me. Don't be afraid. And Peter said, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. Prove it to me that it's you. And he said, come. So Peter, we know, got out of the boat walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he became afraid and he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Matthew writes, immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. In these verses, we see both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. God incarnate, truly God, truly man, fully God, fully man in one human being. There was no lack. He did not lay aside his deity when he took on human form. He laid aside his right to be worshiped as God in humility, but he did not lay aside his deity. He did not compromise his humanity in order to be God in the flesh. He was fully and truly a man, just like you and I. And the writer of the Hebrews says he was tempted in all ways, always as are we, yet without sin. And so we see the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. And it's apparent in these verses that He is still needing to speak to his father. He is still needing to be alone. He may not yet be over what John experienced. He may not yet be over the thought of what John had gone through and what he himself he knew would be facing. He was a man. He was dealing with the emotion of it. He was dealing with the reality of losing someone he loved and knowing for certain what he himself would one time, at one point, have to experience. And his answer to it was not to turn on a TV. His answer to it was not to go buy something. His answer to it was not to self-medicate. His answer was to pray. His, his desire was to pray. His desire was, see, this is, what he was, what was, he, he was doing, he was seeking the mind and the heart of, of his father for understanding, for clarity, for strength, for wisdom, for courage to continue and maybe for answers father what does this mean father how is this all going to happen father why he turns again and again and again in these texts to prayer and he walks on the water in the midst of the storm. And we know that Deans done an excellent job of teaching in Revelation what the waters have represented throughout the Bible. They represent, especially the turbulence of water, represents the chaos of fallen man, the chaos of nations, the disorder that God has come to bring order to. The beast rises out of the water in the book of Revelation, the water representing the chaos of the nations. The psalmist cries out in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? It's the picture of the chaos of of fallen man and fallen nations. And Jesus is walking on the water that is turbulent. It's a picture of Jesus' sovereignty over the affairs of men. Of Jesus being God who is sovereign over all of the affairs and all of the disorder even in the nations and on the earth. The turbulence of the evil of the world rising from the midst of nations and people in turmoil due to sin. Jesus is sovereign over all of it as God incarnate. And he walks on the water as a picture of that sovereignty. And guess what? The disciples catch it. They end up worshiping him as he stills the storm and as he walks on the water. Peter's experience is really powerfully a graphic picture of salvation. Look what happens. In verse 29, look at it. Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. This is the the question in, in the minds and in the hearts of men. Is there a God? Is there truth? Is there, is there an answer? In verse 29, Jesus says, Come. This is the call of God to a man or to a woman. Come. Salvation is always initiated by God. It is God who initiates salvation. It's the voice of God saying to a heart, come. Come to me. Come. And man's response then is to the call of God. When God calls you to come, you will come. Your heart will respond. That's what happened to me. I remember standing in the shower in 1975, Santa Barbara, saying to myself, there is no God. There is no God. If there were a God, this would not be happening. If there were a God, this is what he would do. And it wasn't very long after that, the Lord Jesus said to me, come. And the response of my heart was to come. Because he opened my eyes and I came. And then we see in this story the doubt that is inevitable in our lives. Even as, we, as we've responded to the call of God, but verse 31 it's immediately Jesus reaches out his hand and takes hold of us and says, listen, don't doubt me. Don't doubt me. I am faithful. Some of us today in our our own experience here might be in places of doubt. God understands that. He understands that. Doubt is not necessarily unbelief. Doubt is simply the inability to, 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 to fully take hold of all that we need to take hold of in faith. We're still in faith, but we're just weak in our faith. And there's countless stories in the Bible of men and women of God who, whose the tenor of their life was a life of faith, but at some point or along, along the way they might have stumbled in their faith and doubted Abraham questioning whether or not he could trust God for his life and his wife's life, lied about who Sarah was twice. Peter, doubting. The tenor of their life is faith. But at points they've stumbled. And that's what Peter is doing in this story. And Jesus immediately reaches out and grabs him and says, Don't doubt. Trust me. Know that I am faithful. God's faithfulness will keep us. In verses 34 through 36 of this chapter, he again is in this land of Naphtali that we find him in 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 chapter 4 of of Matthew, the land of Naphtali and Zebulun. We talked about that already, that this was the land of great darkness where the Assyrians would go through on their way to, to conquer and they would pass through this part of the northern kingdom of Israel And as they would go through, they would pillage and they would rape and they would murder. And it was a land of great darkness. And that's where Jesus began his ministry. And Matthew records it in, quoting Isaiah in Matthew chapter 4. And we find him here again now in these verses. And it says in verse 34, When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men in that place recognized him, they sent out everyone around to all that region and brought him all who were sick. They sent around to all that region and they brought to him everyone who was sick. And they begged him, they implored him that he, they might only just touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were healed. Now this, this I love this because I love the fact that these people were so desperate but they had so much confidence that if they were just even touch his garment they could be healed they were desperate for healing they were desperate for jesus it was interesting to me how they were polite too they didn't want to bother him they said just let us touch just let us touch the edge of your of your cloak it'll be enough we don't want to bother you but we're going to bring by the way everybody that's sick we're going to bring everyone. We've, we've sent out a, an email to everybody in the region coming. And they're all going to come here. But we don't want to bug you. All we need to do is just, just touch your cloak. And we'll be healed. And it says, look what it says in verse 36. Read this last sentence with me. Read it out loud. And as many as touched it were made well. As many as touched it were made well. Very simple statement I want to make right now. We must lead people to Jesus, not to anyone or anything else. Jesus is the one who has life. Jesus is the one who heals. Jesus is the one who saves. We have to lead people to him, not to anything else, not to anyone else, not to any man, not to any system, not to any church, not to any Method. We must lead people to Jesus. To Jesus. What they need is Jesus. We have to become comfortable to simply speak the truth of Jesus to people. Believing that if they encounter and just touch the hem of his garment, it will be enough for them. Believing if they just somehow can draw close enough and understand somewhat, he will respond, he will, he will heal, he will free. They don't have to be Christians to get healed. They don't have to get, be Christians to get become free. But God's desire will be to save them through it. He'll open their eyes and they'll believe. Chapter 15, I want you to go down to verse 31. We're going to skip the first 30 verses. Actually, I'm sorry. Verse 21, I'm sorry. Verse 21. He deals with the the Pharisees in the beginning of the chapter. Now we come to verse 21, and we're going to encounter another woman, a Canaanite woman. This is a remarkable story. It's a powerful story. And one of the reasons is because Jesus goes now outside of the land of the Jew and he goes, listen, to the Gentiles for the very first time. Jesus goes into the land of the Gentiles. This is what would be modern-day Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon. It's modern-day Lebanon. Now look at who he encounters here. He encounters, of all peoples, listen, a Canaanite. Now dial up in your memory the stories of the Canaanites from the Old Testament. I was doing a little research and I saw that more than 90% of the genetic ancestry of modern Lebanon today is derived from the ancient Canaanites according to a published paper in the American Journal of Human Genetics. More than 90% of the genetic ancestry today of the Lebanese people is derived from these ancient Canaanites. Do you remember what the Canaanites were? They were the people that, that God wanted completely destroyed. Why? Well, there were a number of reasons, but one of the major... They had so many gods. If you remember the Asherah, was one of their gods. They had countless numbers of gods. Another was Moloch, the god of child sacrifice, where they would literally place their children in molten, heated metal in the form of a god and sacrifice their children to this god again and again and again and again. again. Actually, I found out that... um, Do you have that picture? Could you put it up for me? This is Moloch. Guess where this is? This is sitting right now. It just began in front of the Colosseum in Rome. It's an exhibit that's going on right now in the Colosseum in Rome. A statue of the pagan deity I'm reading from an article. A statue of the pagan deity Moloch, to which children were sacrificed in the ancient world, is now stationed at the entrance to the Colosseum in Rome, which has been designated as a sacred site because of the Christian martyrs who died there. The statue of Moloch outside the Colosseum was built as a celebration of Carthaginian culture and art. A reconstruction of the deity Moloch linked to the Phoenician and Carthaginian religions and featured in this film by some guy, will be stationed at the entrance to the Colosseum to welcome visitors to the exhibition, a press release about the exhibit states. The large-scale exhibition will run through March 29th, 2020. And what's amazing to me is that the Vatican had to give approval for this to take place. Now, I, I guess you could just say it's art, but it's very ironic that it's found at the site of a place where countless believers were killed for their faith. That's Moloch. That's what that statue looks like. That's what the Canaanites worship. That's what they sacrifice their children in again and again and again. And so when they... The, when they the people of Israel were entering the land. God said to them, I want you to destroy the Canaanites, and I want you to kill all of them. I want you to destroy them. I want you to destroy everyone in, uh, among them. I want you to kill the women and the children as well. And we read that, and we go, that's terrible, Lord. Why would you be so cruel? Well, the reason is because of what they were doing and what they rep- represented and what, they, what was in their hearts. And yet the Israelites did not do it. They were unable to do it. They chose not to do it. But instead what they did was when they went in, and you can read about this in the book of Judges chapter 1, they conquered the land and they conquered the Canaanites. And rather than destroying them, they subjugated them to slavery. They made them slaves. So here's the irony of this story. You can take that down now. The irony of the story That this now is a Canaanite woman in the land of Moloch who brings to Jesus, ironically, what? Her child. Her child. And she says, Lord, have mercy on me. Verse 22 of chapter 15. Son of David, she recognizes who he is. My daughter is severely oppressed By a demon. So we have this picture, this beautiful picture of Jesus going to this godless, enslaved, oppressed people. And a woman coming with her child who ironically, people who had been killing their children. And she says, Lord, please heal. And he breaks a bunch of taboos. He goes to the Gentiles. He goes into the land of the Canaanites. He ministers to a woman of all people. And then he acknowledges how great her faith is. And just in this story, in doing this, as I read this, I realized that Jesus puts into order what sin had accomplished and held captive and tried to destroy was a people, a people group, a woman, a child for generations. Jesus goes in and he deals with all of these things of the effects of sin simply through this one healing of this little girl. This is the power of the gospel. The gospel can go into regions where no one would dare go, into the darkest regions to the most oppressed people, to the most enslaved people, and set free. That's the power of the gospel, is it not? To go against every tradition, to go against everything that looks to be logical and and effect a change that is eternal and lasting. It's the power of the gospel. I love this story. I love it. I love the irony of it. I love the, the paradox of it. I love the, 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 the confrontation of Jesus against the religious taboo and against the powers of darkness and, and how he recognizes. Why did he go there? Because the Father sent him there. Because the Spirit of God led him there. And her daughter was healed instantly. As he said to her, A woman, great is your faith. In verse 28, be it done to you. And in verse 29, it goes on to tell us that he went and he went back to the Sea of Galilee. He leaves now this land of Tyre and Sidon and he goes back by the sea. In verse 30, great multitudes came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and they put them at his feet and he healed them and they glorified the god of Israel. And he feeds again in verse 32 now 4000 and look what it says in verse 32 Jesus says I have compassion I have compassion on the crowd. You see this is the this is the heart this is the heart of God. I, I just I, I feel like sometimes we try to over complicate things. We try to over spiritualize things. We try to look for you know, things that, like, even in a text like this, you know, what does this mean? What does that mean? It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's Jesus doing what Jesus does. It's the heart of God. We don't have to have great understanding of all these things theologically to say, what does it mean? It doesn't, it means that Jesus loves people. He loves the poor. He loves, he, he sees the needs of men and women and children. and then he leaves them and he goes in verse in chapter 16 and he now encounters again the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I want you to see just the contrast between what he's been experiencing and now what he's going to experience. So he encounters these people who gather everybody in the region and they bring them to Jesus and they say Jesus if we can just touch the hem of your garment we know that's going to be enough. He, he encounters a Canaanite pagan godless woman who's been enslaved for generations to demonic oppression who has a daughter who's probably been affected by these demons in in a land that is dark and he goes to her and he encounters her faith and he sees it and he heals her and now in chapter 16 the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to him and they say show us a sign that you are who you say you are that's the demons That's the religious spirit. That's the spirit of religion. In contrast to the simplicity of the faith of someone who's desperate for God. The religious mind says, prove it. Show me. So that I will know that this is true. The simple heart says, Lord, I need you. Yes, I need you. I just need to touch you. I need just need to be close enough to you, and I know that I will be healed. And in this chapter, we're not going to have time to look at this. There's so much in this. We're going to see, though, the danger of religion. The danger of religion. Look what Jesus says to these people after they ask him for a sign in verse 2 of chapter 16. He says, "'When it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening.'" You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. Now listen, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. In other words, religion has no ability to discern the truth of the times in which it's living. The religious mind cannot discern. It cannot see and recognize what is is the time in which it, it, it exists. And he says, "You're going to, an evil and adulterous generation asks us for a sign, but there's not going to be a sign given to you except the sign of Jonah, which was what? The resurrection. That's going to be a sign, and even that you will reject, and even that you will not believe. Because their hearts were hardened, because they could not discern. How could they live 10 miles from where the Messiah was born and had been prophesied where, where he would be born and not recognize him when he came to them? How could all the prophecies that were given regarding the Messiah have been fulfilled in Jesus that the Pharisees knew well and still reject him and not acknowledge him? Because religion, religion had blinded their hearts and their minds. Brothers and sisters, we have to be careful that God, who is on the move around us, that we're not blind to do what God is doing. Are you, am I, are we able to discern the times in which we're living and what God is about, what God is doing? The theme of our time in Southern California this last week was leaders in exile. And I loved it because finally in my mind, I'm going, yes, this is what we need to be talking about, is what does it mean to lead? in the world in which we're living now. We're living as exiles in this world, as followers of Christ. And I was thinking about it this morning as we started worshiping, because it's easy for us to get discouraged. As I looked around this morning, I thought, where is everybody? And then I was, as I was worshiping, the Lord just, I felt like, spoke to me and said, listen, there was only a few in Babylon that would stand when everyone else was kneeling. There were only a few that would say, no, I will not eat, when everyone else was eating it. There were only a few that would not worship that that golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had made when everyone else was worshiping it. There were only a few that would pray when they were commanded not to pray, when everyone else quit praying. It doesn't matter The amount of people is not the point. The heart is the point. Yes, the heart of God in us is the point. It's the work of God. It's not our work. It's the work of God. Our work is to obey and to follow God. Our work is to be the people of God in a a generation that is rapidly moving toward its demise. The danger of religion. It's the inability to discern the times. He warns them as he goes on about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Sadducees. He tells his disciples in verse 5, when they've gotten to the other side of the the sea, he says, watch and beware of the leaven of these two groups. And they were confused and they were trying to figure out what he was talking about. And they're still thinking about the feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000. They think he must be talking about bread. We needed to bring bread. And he's going, no, you don't understand. That's not what I'm talking about. Do you not perceive How is it, he says in verse 11, you don't understand what I'm speaking about. He's not talking about bread. He says, I'm talking about the leaven. What was the leaven of the Sadducees? Listen, it was the denial of the supernatural. They did not believe in the resurrection. The the leaven of the Sadducees was to deny the reality of the supernatural realm and the power of the supernatural realm. They believed in a natural world only. It's really interesting to me that one of the things that I'm hearing is I'm with this, these young guys, and again, I heard it yesterday as I was having lunch with one of the young leadership, eldership couples in Southern California. They want me to come up to the church that they're in. And all they're, they're asking me over and over again, teach us about the Holy Spirit. Teach us about the gifts of the Spirit. Teach us what it means, how the Spirit of God is doing what He's doing. It's like there's this hunger, and I, I've, I, I think I told you I mean, a couple months ago, I felt one day the Lord spoke to me and he said, you're going to begin moving again in things that you've moved in in the past, in the spirit realm. I'm going to be releasing things again. And I'm hungry for that. I'm desirous of that. I have faith for that. Because I feel now, finally, it's in a healthy biblical context. But there's this hunger The Pharisees denied, the Sadducees denied it. What was the leaven of the Pharisees? Legalism. Legalism and dead tradition. Just going through the motions. Be careful you don't go through the motions. But may God keep us alive. He goes on in verses 13 through 20. And this is the famous passage of Jesus saying, Who do people say that I am? And we know this chapter, this passage well, and Peter gives the correct answer. You are the Christ, the Son of God. Can I say very simply, this is what I read and what I got from this as I was reading it is again is the need for a revelation of Jesus Christ. We must have a revelation of the Son of God. Look with me at Ephesians 1. You know the text well. Let's look at it. I'm going to land here in a moment. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. But let's just read this again and just see Paul's heart. He says in verse 15, Ephesians 1, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith. Now this is after they've come to faith. These are a people of faith. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward the saints, I do not give to I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And this is what I pray. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us believe. We must have a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter had. That's what he saw. He saw who Jesus was. This is the most important question that a man or a woman will ever have to answer. Who do you say that I am if Jesus asks that of you? My daughter Jana has some really, really good friends where she lives up in Lincoln that are Mormons. And one of them is beginning to question the Mormon faith. And she wants to get together with me and talk to me because she has a ton of questions. And her husband came across some writings that revealed that Joseph Smith was a fraud. He's been raised in the Mormon faith his whole life. They've got six or seven kids they've raised in the Mormon faith, and they're in this crisis in their life because they're finding out that what they believe their whole lives is not true. And they are in turmoil. And I told Jana, I said, and Jana's been trying to talk to her, and I said, the issue is going to be Jesus Christ. That's going to be the issue that you're going to have to pray for them regarding. She said, and Jana goes, well, they believe that Jesus, they believe in Jesus. I said, no, 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 they don't believe in Jesus. The Jesus they believe in is not the Jesus of Nazareth that we know. It's a different Jesus. And that's going to be, and it always is, and it will always be the stumbling block for people, is who do you say that I am when Jesus asks that question? And the answer to that question is the key to eternity. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. You are God, the one who has come to bring salvation. And not only is there a need in this text to see Jesus Christ, can I say this to us? There is a need for a revelation to see the church. There is a need for a revelation to see the church and to understand what the church is. The church is under attack today, not only by the world, but by the church itself. Deconstructing the church. Questioning the need for the church. Questioning the need for gathering as the church. Questioning the need for leadership and what kind of leadership is necessary in the church. There is a need for a revelation of the church. And just as you need a revelation of Christ, you need a revelation of the church by the Spirit of God. So that we will love the church. So that we will understand the importance of the church and the plan of God. Because the church is God's answer. For a dying world. It's the answer that we've been looking at in these other texts regarding what Jesus' ministry was. It's the answer regarding the need for compassion in the world today. The church is the only instrument that can have true compassion. Not just human empathy, but truly the compassionate heart of God. Because there are many, many non-believers who have great empathy and that are doing great things for the poor. but only the church can have the kind of compassion that can set free and heal. The church is the answer for the need for family, the need for community, the need for identity, the need for belonging. The church is the answer. The church is the answer for the need to confront the darkness and the lies of the societies that we live in. It's the church that will prophetically speak to the the darkness, the truth of Jesus Christ, and testify to it. So, brothers and sisters, we have to have a revelation of the importance of the church, of what the church truly is. And this text concludes, and I'm going to conclude by just saying what Jesus says, reading what Jesus says in verse 24. Before this, actually, he prophesies, he foretells his death and resurrection in verses 21 Through 23, Peter decides he's going to rebuke Jesus because he knows better. And he's like, no way, Lord, we're never going to let that happen to you. And Jesus then rebukes him and says, actually, that's not you even speaking, Peter. That's Satan speaking through you. So I don't want to hear any more of this. Get out of my face. And then Jesus says this, and this is interesting to me, verses 24 through the end of chapter 16. Lest the disciples fall into a bad theology regarding the church, which would somehow lead them to believe, because of what Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, when he was talking to Peter about the church and his confession of faith, and giving them the keys of the kingdom, previously in verse 18 and 19, and of their authority to bind and to loose, all of this, lest this goes into their mind where they begin to believe that now somehow on the earth something is going to happen regarding the church and a great conquering victory where the church is going to change the world and it's all going to come, become right. Jesus says, no, I want you to learn that what you need to do is to pick up your cross and follow me. I want you to be willing to lose your life so that you can find your life. There's this continual paradox in the Christian experience where Paul would write in Romans 8, we are more than overcomers in Christ. And the paradox is this, we are more than overcomers who must live carrying a cross daily. Overcomers, victorious, not ourselves, but in Christ. But it's a life that will be a cross-bearing life. It's a life that will be a life of suffering. It's a life that will be a life of marginalization. It's a life that will not be a life that in the eyes of the world is conquering and victorious, but in the eyes of God. Listen, it is. We live a great paradox. There's a theology out there that is teaching that the church is going to be great, is completely overcome everything in the world and victorious in the last days. No. We are going to live as overcomers, but we might die as overcomers, a martyr's death, if that's God's will. So there's this incredible paradox, and Jesus is very sure to make certain that his disciples don't believe something wrongly about who they really are. They've been given great authority. Your confession is true, Peter. I am the Christ. The gates of hell will not be able to prevail against that confession. The church will take this gospel to the ends of the earth. But as you take this gospel, you will be carrying a cross, just as I will soon. And that is our identity, brothers and sisters. We're cross-carrying overcomers. Amen. Stand with me.